Hey there, folks. Welcome to a special re-release of an old episode as we get more and more of our catalog on Spotify so our listeners there can get familiar with stuff we've done in the past as they get uh, as they wait for stuff to come in the future. So from there, um, one of the things we hear the most about as we grow our podcast and talk to new listeners is how excellent our graphic is. And that is the work of our talented, generous friend Alyssa. So if you want a graphic like that to, I don't know, get a new look to help grow your business or whatever, hit her up, littlesprucedesign.com. That's littlesprucedesign.com. And from there, enjoy. This is the show. This is the party. Nobody chose the mortal body. This is the Strange Project Podcast. You are listening to music courteously provided to us by our friends Pan Astral. This is the song, All of the Color. Check them out, panastral.com, panastral on Bandcamp, panastral on iTunes, panastral whatever you get your digital music. Please, please, please check them out. On this episode of The Pod, Michelle and I are discussing the riveting fantastic book by Tony Horowitz. It is John Brown and the raid that sparked the Civil War. You will not be really, you will not regret having picked this book up or at least listening to the audiobook on places like Audible. It is fantastic. So, yes, check out Pan Astral. Check out this book. Check it out in an audiobook, whatever. Go to your library, support your local businesses, support local bands, support everything you can right now because, oh, Jesus Christ, this is weird. Thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to Michelle. Thank you to Alyssa for our awesome graphic. Thank you to Pant Astro for the music. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And take care of yourself. Let's do it. Heart Trump's a pragmatist, so he'll he'll function like I went, yeah, because I was arguing with that point. Sure. Then going, wait, what? No, this is Donald (laughs) Trump we're talking about here. That's right. (laughs) And here we are, four years later. Segue into uh, John Brown. Um, (laughs) What a segue! (laughs) It's going to be impossible for us to go through this recording without ever mentioning that we recorded one already that we're redoing. So I'm just going to get that out of the way now, dear listener. Uh, and I feel like during our first one, though, 
and even during maybe like our planning conversations, it was Brown was almost I don't want to say comical, but kind of like we made maybe made fun of him a little too much. Mm. And after going through the rest of Horowitz's book, I'm like, you know, I think that was unfair. Like I <laughs> I think uh but everyone who talked to him said that he was a you know a man of his word, a Maybe he was a man of conviction. So the whole uh, part about his business dealings makes me wonder if that was... Because obviously his end goal was to end slavery, but I don't think he ever was going to do so in a way that was not, at least not principled or not transparent. Mm. So, yeah, uh... Michelle, rather than getting into it based off of that, how about you get us into the whole, uh, the basics of who is John Brown? Don't, don't do that. Uh, at least. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair. You know, Thank you. <laughs> tell us about the circumstances of uh, his coming into and to grips with the world. Sure. Yeah. Um to kind of reiterate what you said when we started talking about political saviors, uh, political heroes of the mid 19th century, abolitionists were definitely a big part of that. And, you know, the, the name John Brown is a well-known name because of the raid on Harper's Ferry, but I don't think John Brown himself is known very well. And that's a lesson you and I have learned, which is why we're here now doing another episode to try and speak about him in a different way because he was kind of this odd figure, this kind of outsider, this outlier. Uh, you know, we tend to think about abolitionists as being this one solitary group of people that wanted to get rid of slavery. And, um, you know, it was a very complex group of people that disagreed on how to get rid of slavery. And John Brown was one of the few that was willing to take violence on, um, or at least to include violence in, in his um, pursuit of, of uh, ending, ending slavery. And he, he you know, he, he, he's such a man of the antebellum era, born in 1800. He's born in Connecticut, New Englander, family moved around a lot. He was a Calvinist. So uh, his religion would have been a, a huge influence on his perspectives of the world. And uh, he was a man of conviction. He, he took those convictions like all the way because <laughs> he, really he was eventually he, he was eventually executed for them and uh, for his actions that that um, he he chose to take in pursuit of his convictions. So that's like a big, glossy, nonspecific way to at least introduce Brown. <laughs> I think an interesting part about both not only uh, the family he was born into, but his subsequent family that he gave, well, he didn't give birth to, but you know, uh, he fathered, mm -hmm. was that it was still of an age when not make, or children not making out of whether it was infancy or like basically childhood was so common that names were recycled. It's like, oh, that's 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 a little rough, because uh, mm -hmm. he was. I don't know if he himself was one of a couple of Johns, but I believe there was a couple juniors at one point. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, 
his also his sons play a big part in this story. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I did find it interesting too that his father, while also obviously a Calvinist, was maybe a little bit uh, I don't say down on abolition, but certainly down on his uh, on John Brown's methods. And, um, yeah, it's, he's just such an interesting character. And what, I don't want to jump, ah, I don't want to jump too far ahead because <laughs> I'm, I'm still just, uh, so intrigued by the actual raid itself. Mm, and yeah. in our first conversation, it's like, well, why did they call it a raid? It's like, oh, we should have gotten to this part of the book first. That would have made <laughs> more sense. Possibly. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, he went around and rubbed elbows with the prominent abolitionists at the time, such as Douglas and Garrison. And mm-hmm. he's also in with within how we understand American history. And I wonder if part of it is when it comes to, I don't want to say opposition movements, but maybe movements where, so we'll call them progressive movements, movements movements, if <laughs> you will, uh, <laughs> that we gloss over or try to downplay any significance that violence had and tend to play up the nonviolence. But this only seems to be true when it comes to movements that are trying to give power to people that have not traditionally had it. Not so much the ones where it's the people with power violently putting down insurrections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's definitely the case here too, Michelle, because as I said, I don't want to get too much into, like, we'll, we'll get to it later, but who's one of the characters that is involved that ends up putting down or at least being brought in to end Brown's raid? Robert E. Lee. Yes, who is somehow, even though he fought for and commanded the side that lost a supposed uprising, or whatever you want to call it, uh, (laughs) even taught, but he's lionized as a hero, not just in the South, but oftentimes in the North, as this great, you know, brilliant military strategist who was, uh, what's the thing he said, or what people say he was just such a true Virginian that that's all he cared about. Mm-hmm. And I, I did find it interesting that you, you did correct me, because I didn't know this on the previous attempt at a podcast, where the raid took place in what is now West Virginia, but because of so many people that he was uh, taking hostage or attacking during his raid on Harper's Ferry, they were Virginians. And like we talked about in the Washington podcast, Including, Michelle, what's the relation? Was it a great-nephew or great, like, great-grandson like great of George Washington that Brown like was one of the first hostages he took? Oh, yeah. that uh, I don't remember. Okay. We'll have to look that up. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, it's, you know, it, you know, that's the other thing, uh, listeners, that we got, like, really confused and frustrated with sometimes was just everybody you can think of, they're in this story yes. somehow, you know. All these really famous people from the 19th century were just, like, tripping all over each other the whole time, apparently. <laughs> Even, um, well, they're not as famous, but they're certainly famous, and 
related to my wife, her, we still can't quite, not even my wife, sure. I think it's great, 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 great grandmother and grandfather. Her uh, grandmother, Julia Ward Howe, wrote the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which, Michelle, uh, give us a, why that's even more of relevant to our conversation. Yeah, the tune that is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the, the melody in the background that is so famous, was the same melody used and for the song John Brown's Body. And there was a whole other set of lyrics that uh, the Union soldiers used to sing during the Civil War, talking about how great John Brown was and what an important cause he had. And Julia Ward Howe overheard that, the, the, those soldiers singing that tune, and penned Battle Hymn of the Republic. There you and go. was a yeah, friend and contemporary of John Brown. I don't know if it's a contemporary, but definitely a, uh, a part of the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so many of, as I said, the hostages they took were Virginians, and we'll get into this later. Like their most famous Virginia, I would say, maybe in uh, George Washington, fancied themselves people of their word and people like of respect. So... I found this wild, Michelle, and I'm getting way ahead of it. Screw it here. We're, no, uh, I was gonna. I was shark. gonna say, yeah. Why don't you? Why don't you just? I mean, that's that's such a key thing here. Why don't you lead the way? Tell okay. us about the raid on Harper's Ferry. Like what? What happened there? Who was involved? So Go for it. it. Uh, you're gonna have to jump in more because I didn't. I'm sorry, dear listener. I didn't thoroughly take notes or take a lot. Do a lot of research. <laughs> Most of this is off of me this week trying to listen to Midnight Rising, Midnight Rising, both uh, at work and driving around between sales calls in my work truck. <laughs> but the whole part of, you know, it was his sons, people that and also people who had been with him since Kansas. And Michelle, I'll ask you to take us back to Kansas in a bit. Mm-hmm. And this is where, correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, I was trying to look this up today, but also got distracted. How many people did Brown's party actually kill? I believe it is six. Okay. For the Harper's Ferry raid, I believe it was six. Sixteen people died, but ten of them were his own men. So, basic math, six. Yes. (laughs) And what I found just so intriguing while listening to this audiobook is so many of these hostages heard Brown speak and thought, oh, this is a man of his word. So in several instances, they were allowed to leave captivity, go home, and return because they were men of their word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point, one of his captives was so bothered by the fact that, I, I don't know if they'd negotiated a ceasefire but when one of Brown, this is what I remember, one of Brown's followers was trying to go out and rescue another one and was raked by bullets. And the hostage was so bothered because I think they thought there was like a, some sort of at least code where they could go out and gather their wounded or at least their dead and was so offended by this slight that a hostage went out there to help retrieve one of Brown's dead followers or injured followers. It's so weird to think of a hostage taker. And it wasn't even like a whole, 
what they call it, Helsinki syndrome, like they're identifying it was no, we're all we're all men of our word here, and mm-hmm. we're all men of honor, even though you are taking us captive. And from what I understand too, Brown routinely told everybody that hey, all I really want is to get these swords and weapons into the hands of my followers and also into freed blacks who will then help me attack and fight for abolition. Obviously that didn't happen, mm-hmm. but yeah, I found that just fascinating. That was probably like one of my whole, like what in the heck is happening? Like someone mm-hmm. is like, I'll go out and help even though you're taking me hostage. Well, the, that definitely puts a different perspective on things because we talk about the Harper's Ferry um, event, raid, insurrection, you know, there's different, there's so many different terms that have been applied to it over the years, but that puts this, this whole other level of consideration on it, as opposed to just one wackadoodle and a couple of his buddies going in, trying to snatch weapons out of the U S armory there. It, and the whole and the whole event lasted for what two or three days, Correct. something like that. Yeah, it I was. It, a it was siege. While discussing it, with my yes. wife. Like, I guess it was kind of a siege. It was kind of a siege, yeah, because that you know there's uh, there's an amount of time involved there. It wasn't just you know a quick run in and they all got arrested and yeah a few people died, but you know this this was an event that Brown and his men had been planning for I think a few years at this mm-hmm. point. And um, it, it gives it, you know, that that level of, um, I guess, kind of respect uh, about, you know, battlefield decorum. It um, and they did fancy themselves actual soldiers like they, they soldiers. This wasn't a yeah. criminal enterprise. This was a righteous fight. Right. And um, in, you know, it's kind of like the f- the first battle of the Civil War in some ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. I was thinking about that, listening to it, especially since you made that point earlier, Michelle, where it was like, this is, you know, where we, where it kind of came from, you know, talking about the aftermath of the raid and up to, like, at the trial, Brown's execution, the execution of, you know, other members of his party that were caught and killed, that mm-hmm. uh, the South, well, not the South as a whole, I should say, but Southerners, and Southern politicians, including uh, Jefferson Davis, went around talking about how this was the signal of end times. This was the true desire of abolition. This was the true desire of Northerners, where it wasn't any sort of, like, it wasn't up for debate. It was going to be about, it was violence. And this could happen to anybody. Like, mm-hmm. And it was, it, Brown's purpose was to gain weapons and put them in the hands of black men which was the Southern slaveholders absolute worst nightmare Mm -hmm. and had been their worst nightmare for multiple generations. And, um, you know, the idea that, um, there was an actual abolitionist, a white person from the North willing to do something like this to cause a slave insurrection was one of the last straws, uh, for a lot of the Southern States. It makes sense too. Why in the immediate aftermath, People like Douglas and uh, ha- the, both Howes, right off the bat, were like, uh, we're not totally down with this. We weren't maybe t- like super friends with him. But mm-hmm. then after a little bit of time, we're like, you know what? Like, we didn't agree with how he did it, but yeah. 
Yeah, um, a, a lot of other people in in the abolitionist movement did try to separate themselves a little bit from Brown's actions. Uh, you know, that was kind of where some of the early uh, suggestions that he was crazy or a madman of some kind came from was like, no, that was too much for us. He's he's kind of wacky. That's not what the abolitionist movement's about. We don't want war. Um, but, you know, it, he, he kind of became a martyr. Not kind of. He did become a martyr for a lot of people after he was um, arrested and executed two months after the raid. And, um, you know, it was later, a couple years later, within a few years that, you know, other people were saying, hey, you know what, we're going to sing about John Brown now because he was a hero. And uh, you're right. They didn't like what he did. But at the same time, they could not um, deny the, you know, the trueness of his convictions and, and the belief that slavery is wrong and it needs to end. And I'm sure, I don't know if his his design or, you know, I felt like in the chapter about his time, like with the trial and spent awaiting his execution, that there's kind of some murkiness as to whether or not Brown had planned for this cult sort of martyrdom aspect of his legacy or not. It seemed like he was... He understood that there would be consequences, but he also kind of wanted a fair trial and mm-hmm. other things like that. It wanted at least the trial to be conducted fairly, you know, as in like as everything. Like when people said they would do something, to be people of or people or in this case men of their word. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he felt that was fully the case. And I'm sure that both his perception and people who shared similar perceptions aided in, hey, uh, maybe he had a point. Like, whether or not Mm -hmm. it was violence and arming people, uh, is this really a way to conduct ourselves where we're so... to send a message to not just blacks, in this case, but to send a message to white abolitionists that if mm-hmm. you come to the South and do things we don't like, we're going to conduct fairly quick trials, have you killed, and um, people who followed you killed, and make it hard for... Wasn't it somewhat of an issue for John Brown's widow to get both his body and the bodies of her children? Oh, um, that I wouldn't be surprised by that. I honestly don't remember. Um, but I mean, that definitely makes, makes sense that they would have a difficulty, uh, you know, a difficult time getting, getting his remains back. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if, um, John Brown really planned himself to be a martyr. I kind of take it that he really did think that he could be successful and start an insurrection. Um, but I don't think he was delusional at the same time. Um, I think some of his most famous last written words were, uh, you know, the, the United, the sins of the United States can never be cleansed without blood or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of um, paraphrasing, but he was absolutely right. I mean, I think he, he saw the writing on the wall that violence was going to come and it was a matter of, are you going to let it come at you or are you, (laughs) you're going to be part of it and you're going to fight first. Um, 
because, you know, even, even kind of peeling us back a little bit in time, like throughout to the 1850s, you know, the Southern states um, kind of in reaction to, you know, moving the country West and fights over free soil versus slave soil states and, you know, violence was so important to keeping slavery going. Violence was yes. was the tool this uh, to keep this horrific system um, going. And um, I think maybe John Brown was very realistic in some ways that the only way to end this horrible violent system is to use violent first. That's a very good point, Michelle. The whole, uh, you know, how can a system that is based almost exclusively on violence be excised without any violence which was obviously a it, ha, it, it happened one way or the other mm-hmm. in our case a uh, full-blown as it's known civil war but uh, mm-hmm. both sides seem to have different names for it I think <laughs> civil war tends to be kind of the both sides neutral kind of uh, yeah I guess so <laughs> but expanding on that's a good uh, segue Michelle which I'm going to ask you to continue on tell us a bit about what happened as far as like expansion westward uh, and mm-hmm. John Brown's time in Kansas mm-hmm. yeah so the the raid on Harper's Ferry happens a few years after John Brown really gets you know, really like just infamous, uh, which is in Kansas, uh, it was the, the territory of Kansas debate over whether it was going to be a, a free state or a slave state. Um, Congress had the brilliant myopic idea to let Kansas vote itself in whether it was going to be a slave state or a free state. And so in 1854, the territory of Kansas was just flooded with people who were, you know, anti-slavery and people who were pro-slavery. And it was going to be a battle of uh, who, who could cast the most votes for, for which side. And uh, it erupted into, um, you know, these bloody skirmishes um, between pro-slavery and um, anti-slavery people. And John Brown was right there in the thick of it. He he and several of his sons. I don't know if his, did his whole family move out there. I can't remember. I don't believe um, it was his whole family, but yeah, certainly him and several of his sons. And it was yeah, a large the, portion of the Brown clan. Yes, his his older sons at this point would have been like young adults at the very least, and he had like twenty one offspring. They didn't all live to adulthood, but you know, twenty kids, and he had a few of them fighting on his side through a lot of this stuff. Um. But there was a, a a raid that had happened in one Kansas town, and in retaliation, John Brown and a lot of his followers, um, uh, they are known as the um, people who did the Patawatomi Massacre, which I think they killed like six people, um, five or six people, and is one of the main... Uh, you know, events in, in the time period known as Bleeding Kansas between 1854 and the start of the Civil War. And uh, John Brown was right there in the thick of it. And I think uh, we all remember at least hearing about Bleeding Kansas, well, hearing the term Bleeding Kansas in high school mm-hmm. history, but probably don't remember anything else about it. 
Uh, not, not a whole lot, yeah. <laughs> it's funny hearing you like describe it like that. It's like, oh, so this was like the original, not the original, but at least a mid-19th century version of the Proud Boys clashing with Antifa. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's not a wrong analogy. I would agree. Like, it's um, it seems like two ideological groups who are trying to claim control over this space, um, both a geographic space and a political space. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, people get hurt because of it. At least in the case of uh, Bleeding Kansas, there wasn't uh, really an established city and law enforcement and federal mm-hmm. law enforcement that got flown out there to, oh, okay, let's, let's go. Let's avoid doing that for now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a little different. It was a little rough and tumble out there. Yeah. So. <laughs> but there certainly was the, uh, and not to cast aspersions at John Brown, but there certainly was instances of uh, ideologically driven assholes willing to go out and fight amongst each other. Well, let's let's also not forget that it's just, it's just not people like Brown. I yep. mean, right in the middle of this, you know where I'm going with this. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> in 1856, we have the the notorious Brooks Sumner affair, where uh, Representative Brooks from uh, South Carolina speaking used of his walk. <laughs> yeah, speaking of violence, walked on onto the floor of uh, the House of Representatives and attacked a senator, Senator Sumner from Massachusetts, who was an abolitionist. And nearly beat him to death on the floor of Congress. But he nearly I broke mean, his cane in the process. Think of the cane. Oh, the poor cane. That's right. <laughs> he broke my cane. His his skull broke my cane. Yeah, I mean it's I mean it's it's crazy to think about. I, you know, we have a very divided country now. We have yet to see members of Congress like trying to beat each other to death in Congress, at least right now. <laughs> so. It does make sense, (laughs) that it came from a state who, for, well, there's probably people that are in positions of political power now, but, you know, had always held of their right to secede at any moment if -hmm. they did not agree with what was going on, or at least, uh, I I still can't believe this is a big nullification. Yeah, We're just just trying to follow that law, because we don't feel like it. Right. States rights above all else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like nowadays, like when we hear about embarrassing things in the news, it's like it's always Florida. Yeah. Well, I feel like in the 19th century, it was always South Carolina. It was always South Carolina (laughs) that wanted nullification. Uh, You know, let's secede from the union. Uh, We're beating each other on the Senate floor. We're going to piss off Jackson where he almost sent the military to to beat us up because we want to secede. It's, yeah, it's, it's always South Carolina. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah, Jackson was like, hey, I'm pro-slavery too, but you guys need to calm down there. Like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, you guys need to sit down. <laughs> calm down. It didn't work, obviously. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it still came later. It rarely does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Brown, he's not, he's not quite the anomaly that I guess we think he is. I mean, you know, the Harper's Ferry Raid is, is kind of the big... Uh, the big event that makes him stand out from the crowd, but there, there was a lot more violence going on before the civil war. I think that we tend to remember or tend to realize or want to recognize over, over slavery. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, We can take this part out, but you know, I texted you about possibly like co-writing a thing on kind of 
how elections look now, like, well, as I said, like rat fuckery was yes. you don't have <laughs> Such a good word. political operators or goons from a political machine showing up and stealing a ballot box or standing outside a polling place and threatening to beat people up if they don't vote correctly or, you know, just not voting at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I think is kind of, you know, we, that's not a, oh my gosh, like, you know, things aren't that bad. It's, no, it's, we've kind of at least decided that violence uh, <laughs> as a part of our democracy is a bad thing. And we've actually tried to make that better. So I think kind of going, eh, things were just more violent back then is certainly true, but also going, that does not mean that things uh, are okay now. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't need to, we don't need to whitewash that. That's for sure. But certainly too, the whole, uh, it's understandable that, and I think it's a great kind of, What's the word I'm looking for here, Michelle? Um, not a metaphor, but the fact that uh, when so much of what we love is decorum and we hear about history or, or in this case, uh, profiles and courage is senators in particular doing things where they knew it would be politically unpopular, but because it was the high road to take and was helping the furtherance of our nation uh, those are the things we think of and think of well but uh, for some reason a southern senator beating the crap out of Sumner on the floor of the uh, senate is just sort of like a, it wasn't that funny as opposed to an, an another instance of how violence perpetrated by one side is somewhat written off and sort of like, well, you, you have to understand the times versus how even myself think of John Brown, where it was, oh, this guy, like, yeah, I guess his mind was in the right place, but what the hell was he thinking? What a crazy dude. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he, it's, it's not necessarily that it's because John Brown was involved in violence that he was called crazy. It's because of what, what he was trying to fight for. Mm -hmm. you know protests and riots had you know that was how this country was formed <laughs> was a bunch of white guys saying hey you know what we don't like what the brits are doing to us and so they fought a revolution for it and in the early early decades of the country you know there were non-landowning white men who wanted to participate uh and sure enough enfranchisement uh in enfranchisement expanded um, but as it, as that goes on to expand and it's like, okay, so all the white guys now are in charge, all the, all white men have the right to vote, you know, people of color at the time or who were free or women, uh, you know, there were still plenty of other groups in this country that were vital, you know, citizens to the structure of the nation, but they weren't given a political voice. Those were the more dangerous ones, Right. That's mm -hmm. why John Brown was considered insane, because he wanted to free black people, which was, yes. you know, not even not even a lot of northerners wanted that. We have this really like bifurcated idea that everybody in the southern states were racist and they wanted slavery. 
and that everybody in the northern states were not racist and they wanted slavery to end. And that was not the case at all. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was it was pretty rare to think about racial equality at the time. And John Brown was even more rare because the violence he was, you know, perpetrating or perpetuating. What, what word do I want to use? I'm not sure. The violence he was using was for those groups outside of the accepted riot group. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. <laughs> I'm not saying this very well, but it's like, it's okay to protest if you're a white man, but if you're a white man protesting on the behalf of black people, forget it. You must be nuts. Yes. Yes. Uh, he wasn't seeking to end the, <laughs> make, make it so there were no more slave states. He was right. seeking to get a, to do away not only with slavery entirely, but then also to liberate and have black people be in such standing that they could have arms and participate in such attacks and such... actually be considered equal. Yeah, yes. and uh, have agency and be a part of their own future. Like, I don't know if I shouldn't say I don't know if that's why we still are taught to th think of him as this kind of outlier or this. Yeah, this was important, but you know, violence is bad. But I think that's definitely, um, it's got to play a big role, like, in the context of John Brown and why uh, every history course I took, I feel like it was, he was just mentioned. It was like, oh, yeah, and this yes. guy was a thing. But the right. significance is never really brought up. Right. And again, it's not even necessarily that violence is bad. It's like what he was using violence for is what was bad. We now we know now that slavery and racism is bad, but but uh, there's not even a but there. It's just the <laughs> whole like, um, but violence is bad. Um, okay, so knowing what we know now, we go back in time and say, hey, John Brown, listen, things in the future just on their own happen to be different. We'll just call it different. They're not marginally better, just different. So you shouldn't use violence here, sir. And then yeah, I don't Brown think that would have convinced him. <laughs> yes, get back in your time machine and go back to the hither future. <laughs> yeah, forget it. Forget <laughs> it. Yeah, because, I mean, the whole magical thinking around racism is that it's this way for a reason. And upsetting that power structure is what's bad. You can use violence to enforce the power structure, mm -hmm. but using violence to topple that power structure, you're you're crazy. You must you're wrong. It was a bad thing to do. And I think it was, you know, that's that was kind of the, the thinking at the time. But then even after the Civil War leading into Reconstruction and the kind of, you know, well, the end of Reconstruction, really, like the, the giving up on Reconstruction so early so that, you know, the Southern whites didn't have to let black people vote anymore. That's right. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a whole nother level of new magical thinking around John Brown and, and what he represents. Because um, you don't want to talk about him as a hero or a martyr. He must be nuts. He was, and, and he was the first person executed for treason in the United States. It was treason against Virginia, but you know, still the United States. He he was crazy. Like, could you imagine that now if a state convicted someone for treason against that particular state? 
No. <laughs> Treason kinda... against South Dakota. What? what? <laughs> Treason against Rhode Island. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> and to your point, too, about violence, um, yes, the violence that he perpetrated, and I, I think what you meant to say, Michelle, is the violence that he perpetrated and effect, er, sought to perpetuate. There yes, we go. thank you. Um, but what the violence that he actually used was put down by an even greater show of violence, not just to break the siege, we'll call it that, but then mm. to carry out justice as it was uh, portended. I don't, even, I don't think I used that word correctly there. Um, <laughs> now, that's fine. Like, that's the state coming in and doing so. Um, I don't want to get into this as much as I did on our last one when it comes to kind of the conservative I'm gonna go, I'm gonna say it fetish when it comes to state sponsored violence hmm. but I think that's part of it too is what is this guy doing this is someone using violence to challenge the state violence to challenge the established order of things and uh, that can't happen but at the same time in doing so allowed for violence protecting the established order to come in and set things right. Mm -hmm. uh, which I suppose, too, is kind of where you get some gray areas of violence committed during the Civil War. Because uh, mm -hmm. when Sherman went in his march, it was, well, you guys, you guys, you guys did a thing. You guys <laughs> he, went against the more superior stuff. power, and you didn't think about it, and but certainly, Michelle, also, as you said, the whole, uh, can you even call it Reconstruction anymore? It's this, like, all right, Reconstruction, all right, we're good, we're good, uh, you guys can have, yeah, can have slavery anymore, but we're, we're all friends again. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can have tenant farming and chain gangs and all kinds of things that look like slavery, but we're not going to call it that anymore. Don't worry. Yeah, and we'll, we'll help, like, rebuild your stuff, but we're mm -hmm. also going to help out your whole pride thing. Like, we're going to go, mm -hmm. hey, we're here to help you. We, we feel bad for tearing down the little industry you guys did have. Um, <laughs> I guess industrial infrastructure. Let's go for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're also then going to go, hey. We, we get it. Uh, we're, we're not mad. And you guys can kind of keep doing your thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pretty much. How about, how about the time leading up to it? Leading up to the 1850s. Because there's, there's a whole lot of things that happen in John Brown's lifetime. Like a lot. Like the whole uh, upstate New York thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. What's up in What's up in New York? So in upstate New York, there was a lot of money, and there was also a lot of people with money trying to find movements to attach themselves to, or hmm. ways to better humanity, such as uh, that's where Joseph Smith came from, and a bunch of other things that were happening up there. John Brown. <laughs> Yes. Spent some time up there and found a wealthy benefactor who had land, although they later found out it was 
not the best land for cultivating crops. <laughs> and why Brown went up there was he had a history of somewhat farming, mostly uh, running a ill-fated, uh, what, tannery? Or was it just, like, raising sheep? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a combo. Um, he he was not he was not the best businessman. Um, definitely not super financially successful. Not good with money planning. But he seemed to use this ability that he had of having money, or at least getting money from people, to show that yeah. he was success. Like, well, this guy gave me money. Oh, okay. Well, that guy can't be wrong. Mm-hmm. How'd you How'd you make out? Let's not talk about that. I'm not yes. being counted by creditors. Well, that that region of upstate New York, they, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, do you know what one of its nickname uh, nicknames is? I'm gonna feel like an idiot once you say it because I, I feel like it's <laughs> it's in my brain popping around, but I just cool. forgot about it. Well, I just learned this last week, so don't feel bad at all. Um, but it's called the Burned Over District. I didn't actually think that's what it was. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, what was your guess? Something with like movements or like. Well, know. and that's and that's what it is. Like, you know, the Second Great Awakening. Okay. Uh, religious revivalism, very important in the you know antebellum America era. But the Burned Over District, it just historically we see all of these like, like you said, movements kind of new branches of religions are founded there. Um, this is also the same area with uh, women's rights movements, which we'll talk about someday. And, you know, Seneca Falls and um, in 1848, this, it, it's, it, you know, somehow upstate New York was just kind of this little like hotbed of social movement activity. Uh, you know, a lot of important figures also come out for the temperance movement. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of social change movements up there and John Brown was in that region and he did gain benefactors who were, you know, abolitionists who thought, Hey, you know what? This guy's pretty passionate. I don't mind forking over some money for him to pursue this cause. It also put him in touch with people like Frederick Douglass who yes. were not wealthy, but were viewed as key intellectuals and yep. it was meet this guy. And again, this is why I'm so glad we did this <laughs> follow-up conversation is even last week, I was like, yeah, this guy's just nuts. As I said before, like, <laughs> my original note was he was excessively human and it was, he was excessively Calvinist. Mm. No, reading about all this stuff, like, it just, he was just very principled. And I think mm-hmm. everyone he spoke to, he had the same, it, he never came across as a con man. He just, everyone picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And he's a man of conviction and wants to continue that and find ways to make or get more followers or in uh, the case of that upstate New York where his benefactor had this land for him to use and wanted to teach people how to grow crops and stuff like that. Well, uh, as I said, the crops weren't very good, so that didn't go over very well. But also, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michelle, I believe this benefactor, like, uh, John Brown was not his first patron, if you will. Mm. Like, he tried it a few times, but the land just kind of sucked so bad <laughs> that nothing seemed to yeah. work out. <laughs> I, believe, sure. I think they tried like, to do kind of like a whole like temperance kind of colony there, but mm-hmm. no one really wanted to go there. Also, there's the whole thing of 
especially amongst men, uh, the whole not drinking thing was not a huge uh, draw <laughs> to the temperance movement. Yeah, there weren't there weren't as many men involved as there were women <laughs> in the temperance movement. That's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, also thinking about the time period when all of this is going on, if we if we kind of look at like the middle of John Brown's life, that's that's smack in the 1830s. Mm -hmm. Who, who's president at the time? Uh, let's see. Someone by the name of Andrew Jackson. And then <laughs> as we talked about in a planning conversation, a bunch of people that kind of died. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. Andrew Jackson in particular. So we're, we're looking at this time period where it, within John Brown's lifetime, we, we get Andrew Jackson right in the middle. And that's kind of when there's kind of the shift politically, because isn't it, I believe that's when the Whig party yes. kind of develops Correct. and they are more for a strong central government than the democratic Republicans are. So they're, they're this party that is more interested in national infrastructure, but they're very, very neutral on slavery. They kind of don't want to talk about it too much. And then the United States gets even bigger. We've already gotten the Louisiana Purchase at this point. But then a few years later, we get the Mexican-American War. Gets all of California. Polk just like, <laughs> take you know, when he's president, completely changes the geography of the country and it becomes even bigger. So there we are in the 1840s, where, where you know, which slaves, or I'm sorry, which states are going to be free and which states are going to be slaves, or slavery states, and you know, the, the politics are shifting so fast because um, we also get the Free Soil Party right around this time. We're coming right around there. <laughs> we're coming around there. Free Soilers. We're the free Soilers because the Whigs are not aggressive enough to be abolitionists so the free soilers are and then so all of this is happening while the industrial revolution is happening the united states gets so much bigger indian removal happens and they are forced west so then we get the cotton south like where mississippi and alabama are industries exploding steamboats are invented it's like around this time period, around all of these social movements, <laughs> when people are thinking we really need to get away from slavery, it's just like, it's like the golden ticket for the slave states at this time, because moving into the Delta region in Mississippi, the land is better than ever for cotton. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just want to keep it going. It just, it, it's, I don't even know what words to use anymore <laughs> to like describe like what a perfect like powder keg this would have been to lead to violence, you know, to try to get rid of slavery. It was because how could you, it was becoming so much more ingrained, like even on an industrial level, even though it was still like the agricultural South. Exactly. One of the, I loved hearing this in college where I, <laughs> and I'm sure you'll remember this too, Michelle, I don't know if it was just poli sci courses or just UNC or what, but, there seemed to be kind of these, you had your standard people in each class that would talk a lot. You had the Republican that was Republican because their parents and their grandparents were and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you had people that, mostly that side of the room would always talk about the, what their parents told them. And in this instance, I remember 
dude who sat in the front who wore cowboy boots and always <laughs> talked about what his Irish grandparents had to say on subjects, mentioned how, well, slavery would have eventually gone away because of industrialization and because of innovation. He talked about the cotton gin and the political science professor in this course who, I'm not going to mention his name because I'm also critical here because he was fairly bad about cutting conversations off when mm, it was going yeah. like nowhere. He jumped yeah. in and went, nope. Uh, actually, the cotton gin only increased the use of slaves. Like, <laughs> the, it, yeah, it made refining cotton more efficient, but that just meant that like, people, they had more, like, since there was more output, that meant there was more input as well. Like, it was, all right, let's get more slaves to do this. So, yeah, I just want to throw that in there because the whole idea that, and I've heard this for years from different, well, ironically, <laughs> Republicans, but conservatives, we'll call them that, who said, no, 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 slavery got away eventually because of industrialization, because of economic and uh, industrial innovation. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, there's not a whole lot of historical examples of slavery just kind of ending either. Who would have thunk it? I know. I know. Just just saying. (laughs) If you'll allow me to be a little bit uh, generalizing here, but America is a lot of what we think about when how we try to explain away our history and say how we're different. Mm-hmm. Bringing up the free soilers, though, was also a very good, <laughs> Michelle, because uh, <laughs> in some ways, who would you say was, I know that like they weren't necessarily all about one region, but... Uh, there was one particular free soiler from a certain large state in the Northeast who would have had a backing of a fair amount of people in the Northeast, in that state in particular, with a lot of money, and which would have been a little bit more, allowed them to be more economically influential than, say, the Whigs were. Hmm. And I'm sure that also sped things up when you have a president from New York City who is, or New York State, excuse me, but New York City, (laughs) who um, is coming in and saying, nope, uh, listen, I'm going to do this as well. We're going to oppose slavery and expanding slavery. uh, Sorry, expose? Words. (laughs) Uh, Oppose the expansion of slavery in new states. Oh, and by the way, uh, my city also controls banking for large swaths of the entire country, as it were. Yeah. It still does. Yes. And who was that? Martin Van Buren. There you go. Which is so interesting, because he was kind of Jackson's hand-picked he was successor. Secretary of State. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I do... I want to revisit this. Your point about how he, and we'll talk about uh, Garrison later, obviously, but even amongst abolitionists, there weren't a lot of them that really thought of black people as actual equals and, or even the possibility of having them be equal equals. Mm-hmm. And that never seemed to cross Brown's mind. It was always, these are humans, we're depriving them of their rights, this is an absolute sin, we must end this now. And mm-hmm. he didn't... <laughs> 
he never seemed like yes he read up on military tactics and stuff like that but from what i've read and listened to i should say more appropriately <laughs> he didn't seem to have that same sort of fetish towards violence or reverence towards violence it was well if it comes down to it it must be yeah but he also he also did try to surround himself and find supporters who were of military experience yes um it, it wasn't it wasn't just like his his sons that he um got to help him with with his abolitionist work and there were even a couple of his kids that were like i don't want to do this mm -hmm. and um they they stepped back uh but he you know he tried to recruit men and uh a lot of his uh financial supporters also tried to recruit men who did have actual military experience to assist True. him in this effort um but, but particularly harper's ferry so he 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 still he still had a respect for like what violence could mean in a way that he tried to plan for it you know mm -hmm. um as opposed to just just running in with 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 no research or backup or plan um it wasn't one of his men even in living in harper's ferry for a few months yes before the raid happened like this was a long time coming for um for him and um and I and I think that that shows that he's not crazy. <laughs> like no. he he really did try to plan things out as best he could. And I think to your point, Noel, which you texted me earlier this week, it's you know the point was not going in and killing as many men as possible. The point was going in and getting as many weapons mm -hmm. to start the slave insurrection. But it was not about killing many many people during the raid or the siege itself. No, it was it was not a act of terror it was not a yeah act of just wanton violence it was the uh it was a part of a broader strategy mhm mm yeah it was a broader strategy that ultimately helped kick off the civil war but the plans he envisioned for it just never came to fruition no and we've also learned from many well not to call it a war but from actual wars Subsequently, like in World War II, where there was this belief that if, you know, you armed Nazi resistance or just made things shitty enough for the German people, or if we were willing to arm Iraqi resistance or made life shitty enough for Iraqi people, that they would take up arms against the government. Mm. That's just not always the case. It's a lot of people... Uh, even when they things are bad, they necessarily they don't necessarily want to commit acts of violence or put themselves in that kind of danger. They want to find ways to live. And well, I, actually, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. But that makes me think of your point earlier of how um, Brown figured and hoped that if he was unsuccessful and he did get arrested. He would get a fair trial. Mm -hmm. That is not the case for African Americans at that time, and nope. they knew that. That yep. was part of that was part of the mechanism to um, keep them living in a state of of slavery, in a sense. You know, trying to live live a life under under um, 
the brutal treatment of some other human, um, you know, if they, you know, they, they wouldn't have gotten a trial. They mm -hmm. wouldn't have been arrested. Um, odds are they just would have been killed on the spot and all of their family too. You know, just like these horrible consequences that John Brown didn't necessarily have to consider for himself That's because he was point. a white person. Yeah. Because he was white and he knew it. Um, so that use of violence um, to spark insurrection, he had a little more space to work with than anybody uh, either enslaved or free black um, would have at that time. Michelle, take us to the actual good thing of the week. Uh, sure. Uh, I, it feels kind of out of place. But yeah, my good thing of the week <laughs> is that my sister no longer has leukemia. <laughs> Hooray! It's amazing. So she was diagnosed uh, June 1st, and uh, she's officially cancer-free as of October 22nd. Take that, 2020. Take that, 2020. And now you are going shopping for things at Ikea and yes. uh, <laughs> possibly watching a Aaron Sorkin film on Netflix tomorrow. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it should be good. <laughs> That's excellent. And as I said, the uh, whole bad bones merchandise you all had made was amazing yeah it's it's pretty great so she's gonna keep that nickname for a while i think so <laughs> yep take that leukemia <laughs> exactly <laughs> thanks michelle thanks noel